This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, performance. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This is located right in the heart of the Theatre District, 42nd Street. The American Theatre Wing, as you know, created the Tony Awards. It is the award given for excellence in the theatre, and it is the theatre's highest honor. But the wing is more than that. It's more than the Tony. From the days of the stage door canteen comes our hospital program. This is current today. We are bringing theater and live entertainment, professional theater, into hospitals and institutions. From our school, which was started as an outgrowth of performers coming back to retool their trade, we continue these seminars. The professional school of the American Theatre Wing had such wonderful people as Harold Prince and Richard Rogers teaching, and students like Charlton Heston and Gene Stapleton. And the doors were always open so that they, the students could cross from musical comedy into directing, into producing, into even bookkeeping from a wonderful producer whose name was Herman Shumlin and who taught at the Wing School. Today, we continue these services. The American Theatre Wing is possibly the longest ongoing theatrical organization giving service to the community through the theatre. We have our Saturday Theatre for Children program, and that is exactly what it is. Children line up, commit themselves to go to the theatre on Saturday mornings in their schools. They buy a ticket and they make a plan to go to the theater. And I think that this is the beginning of taking the theater as a habit, as a need, not just going to the theater because it is the biggest hit or the longest run or you can't get a ticket for it, but a need to go to the theater and enjoy the theater because they've done that all their lives. These seminars, which are brought to you as one more service of the wing, is based on giving you an insight into what it is to work in the theater. The performance, the, plays, the playwright, the director, and the producer. 
and today's seminar is on the performance. And I would like to introduce to you our co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple, who is a producer, a director, an author, and a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and Scotter Chapin, who is Dean of Columbia School of the Arts and for a long, long time has been a member of the American Theatre Wing's Tony Award nominating committee and is still a survivor of that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, before we go any further, let me have them introduce to you this wonderful panel that we have this morning. And thank you, enjoy, yeah. learn, and be part of the seminars. I'm very happy to introduce at my far left a delightful lady who is currently in Sweet Sue playing Mary Tyler Moore's alter ego. Uh, a short time ago, she was in Bernard Shaw's Aren't We All, co-starring with Rex Harrison and Claudette Colbert. She's also fourth generation of the famous Redgrave acting dynasty in England. She's also a founding member of Britain's National Theatre, and her name is Lynn Redgrave. Uh, next to Lynn is Trezana Beverly, and she was awarded the Tony Award uh, for a magnificent performance. I have to read this name because it always escapes me. Uh, for card girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. <laughs> and uh, uh, as I said, her name is Trezana Beverly. A wonderful And right next to me is a delightful young man who, who has been, made it very enjoyable to see Amadeus, which he played that role, and uh, also um, The Elephant Man, which was not as beautiful, but also was, was very, very interesting. And right now he's playing in The Nerd, and, and he is The Nerd. <laughs> and that's Mark Hamill. <laughs> Now it's my turn to introduce those that are to my right. And at the end of the panel, next to Isabel Stevenson, is the gentleman who's come here creating the role of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. And he created it in London, for which he was nominated for the Lawrence Olivier Award. He's a newcomer to Broadway, although that sounds like an odd phrase to use for somebody that's been here in spirit for a long time. And he has, of course, extensive credits in both musical theater, Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, as well as concerts throughout England and Ireland. And we welcome Calm Wilkinson. <laughs> the next gentleman is currently on Broadway in the smash hit Me and My Girl. He's an actor of long standing on Broadway, has appeared in numerous shows from Oklahoma to On Your Toes, and a few years back, a show that many of you may remember called Bravo Giovanni. <laughs> he received the American Theatre Wing's Tony for his performance in Irene with Debbie Reynolds and his old friend George Irving. <laughs> uh, 
the lady to my immediate right has been in numerous Broadway and off-Broadway shows, including Last of the Red Heart Lovers. She was a star of her own television series, Alice, and she's now in Neil Simon's Broadway Bound, and if I may say so, gives an unbelievable performance, Linda <laughs> Lavin. Want to take the first question, um, or ask the first question? No, you do it. Okay. <laughs> this is about performance, and I think it might be fascinating to find out how each of you got your initial start in the theater. And I would like to call first on Lynn Redgrave for that. Ah, um, well, my start happened um, in a, in a rather odd way. It was almost by default. I was in uh, at drama school, the Central School of Speech and Drama, and. For most drama students, we always think auditions are things you do, but you never get, because that's all you hear about. So I heard about an audition for a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. They wanted Helena, and it was to be directed by Tony Richardson, who at that point wasn't either my brother-in-law or my ex-brother-in-law, but it later became both of those things. And uh, I thought, well, I'll go and audition. I went to the principal of the drama school, and I said, can I go and audition? And they said, no, certainly not. You're not ready. And I thought, well, that's a bit much. So I, so I thought, well, I won't get it, so I'll go anyway. So I went and I got the job, and then I didn't know what to do because I thought a job in hand, and I called my dad, who was in New York appearing in a play, and I used to call my dad for advice because I knew if I got mad at his advice, I'd do the opposite, and if I liked his advice, it was, I'd agree with it. And he said, you're much too young, you're not ready, you haven't finished your training, so I accepted the job, and that's how I got started. <laughs> that's a good succeed. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Mark Hamill? Uh, professionally speaking, getting started in the theater, I, I auditioned to replace Tim Curry in Amadeus, and uh, I knew they were interested because they said if their 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 first choice before me was was um, oh gosh, don't go up on this. He was in Equus. He's a wonderful actor. Peter Firth. <laughs> Peter Firth. Thank you. And uh, they, they were having <laughs> they were having problems with his green card, and they they called me and asked me to learn the role. Ordinarily, you know, you take that with a grain of salt. They said, oh, you did very well, you know, don't leave town. <laughs> <laughs> you say, you, you, you say, yeah, sure. But they told me to learn the part, and, um, and then Peter did get his green card, and they called and said, you're not going to do Amadeus, but would you, would you like to do Elephant Man? And at that point, I was really looking for any, any good role. And I said, well, that's fine if I can pass muster with the original director, Jack Hofsis, who was in California. And so I read for him at the Huntington Hartford Theater, and he said, I think you should do this. And three weeks later, I went on. That's not a long time. I mean, but it was good in a way, because 21 days doesn't give you enough time to Worry. panic. <laughs> yes, you're just learning the basics of getting around the stage. So that was my start. And Joe Draving, I've always wanted to know how you happened to get into the theater. You always look like a banker to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I went to dramatic school in Boston, and then uh, I came to New York and auditioned for a, a road company of the student prince, and uh, got the job, and they gave me a beer mug and a road map and, <laughs> and I was off and I remember we were playing Washington the night of Pearl Harbor. That was Someday. my first job. <laughs> the world came apart. When I was As a matter of fact, in, in uh, the book Day of Infamy, Walter Lord's book, in the 
in the first chapter, I think, they, when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, they were looking for the chief of naval operations or something, and they couldn't find him in Washington. Yeah. And he was at the National Theater watching the student print. <laughs> <laughs> eyes are on my beer mug. <laughs> That's how I got started. And Linda there? Uh, I uh, was at college in Virginia, and I stopped off on the way back to Maine, which was home in New Jersey, to be with uh, friends of the family. And they said, you know, we have some friends in the construction business, and they're putting up a new theater here. Maybe you could get a job. <laughs> so a life is amazing. I called the friends in the construction business. <laughs> I was 18, and I said, so how do you get a job here? And it was a professional theater. It wasn't like a little theater, and it was stupid to even imagine that I could get a job from people in the construction business. <laughs> and they said, well, the... The musical director is uh, Milton Rosenstock, oh, who is mm, wonderful, great, mm. and he's in New York. So if you can find him, then you can probably get the job. <laughs> so <laughs> I found him. I don't. I looked him up. I guess innocence sure. is amazing. I took a Greyhound bus into New York. I went to his apartment. Something I would never do now. <laughs> him and he said read this and put a piece of music on the piano and I could read music and he was astonished I mean this is New York City you know they were having auditions at the Variety Arts Club on 8th Avenue and here this little jerk comes to New York and sings for this major musical director and he says you've got the job and I thought this is a nightmare this is not and I just sort of floated all the way back to New Jersey and I, this is easy, show business is easy. What a life I'm going to have. And that was my first job and I did that summer, 10 shows in 10 weeks. You know how we did yes. that. We were the resident uh, chorus and then I went back to college and finished my education. Good. And then it got hard. That's <laughs> Carl. Carl Wilkerson. What is your first step? Well, my background is basically sort of music and concerts and on the road with bands. And musical theatre started in 1970 in Dublin when we, uh, we did Superstar. And uh, they heard about me in London doing Judas. I was playing the part of Judas. And when my mother heard I was going to do Judas, she wouldn't talk, being an Irish Catholic, <laughs> she wouldn't talk to me for months afterwards. But, uh, they came over and they saw me doing Judas. And within three months, I was in the West End doing it. And uh, I remember I couldn't get used to this because uh, they were saying, well, we have six Jesuses and three Judases. <laughs> <laughs> and this was incredible being sort of an Irish Catholic and taken out of Dublin straight into London. And I said, well, one Jesus does it this way and the other Jesus does it the other way. And they were using this name all the time. It sounded very profane to me. But eventually... <laughs> eventually... I got used to working. I worked with about seven, I think about eight or nine Jesuses and about ten different uh, sort of Pontius Pilots and all sorts of things like that. It was a baptism by fire, I can tell you that. But uh, I remember the one line that uh, they said, uh, uh, there was a man called Anthony Bowles who, I'm sure he won't mind me imitating his voice, but he said, you know, he said, good Judases don't grow on trees. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> My mother used to send me to mass every time I came home. <laughs> That's how I started. <laughs> well, I was um, making the crossover from experimental theater into commercial theater, and uh, it was um, it was. Uh, very, very hard for me because many of my friends were in the avant-garde theater. I went away and did some dinner theater for a little while and I was really somewhat at my wits ends when I came back to New York and I remember saying to myself if I could only um, find someone who I could talk to who would understand my situation and preferably someone black and preferably a woman and in moments of crisis we can get very very bold that way and many people had been telling me about an actress named Novella Nelson and her name was all around me, all around me for about a month or so and I heard that she was uh, casting a play over at the public theater called Les Femmes Noires by Edgar White and I went over there not to audition but to talk to her and I, I went in and I sat down at this table out in the middle of the stage and uh, I said, uh, and then I proceeded to, um, you know, tell her my problem uh, because I really felt after spending a few years in the experimental world that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to sing and dance and be a little more out front with my talent and a little <coughs> less intellectual at times. Uh, it does present certain limitations and uh, she listened and she said thank you and I got up and left <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she called me the next day and uh, asked me to uh, become a part of a general audition with the ladies for the show and uh, I auditioned and got into that production Ironically, the stage manager on that production was R. Scott, who later became the director of Colored Girls. Mm -hmm. So you see how things work out. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get to the public theater then? Through that production. Through that production? Through that production, and I met another lady, Barbara Montgomery, who was in that mm -hmm. production, who said to me, I want you to understudy me in My Sister, My Sister, and one thing kind of led to another. And then, as, as Linda says, it got hot. Yeah. <laughs> it gets hot. Yeah. Did it get hard for you, George? <laughs> I don't think it ever did. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to hear what brought, led up to all these accidents of yes. being. Yes. Had you, you, I know, had studied. Yeah. Right? Yes, I had studied voice and uh, I'd been to dramatic school and uh, it just seemed to mm -hmm. progress from where? one show dramatic to another. School, where? In Boston, a, a, a school that, is, that no longer exists. It was the Leland Powers School. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <It was an laughs> excellent, excellent school, really. But it, uh, it is now defunct. It was right behind. Not because of you. No, no. They, they plotted on for a while after I left. <laughs> I think, uh, Isabel, we have a group of people who got going very simply for a change. I can't believe Usually that. we have a long story. I, I can't believe that there has to be something that led up to the construction company. You know, you could have asked for a job as a secretary with a construction oh, well, company. Why did you get I one wanted to the act. I wanted yeah. to act. <laughs> That's what yes, I want to know. I did not want to be in the construction business. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do now. <laughs> <laughs>
acting. <laughs> uh, yes, well, I was brought up in a family. My mother had been a coloratura soprano and hadn't pursued a career that she began in New York, but we, she came from Portland, Maine, and we all went. I was born in Portland, and my mother, having started a career here, went back home and continued to sing all her life to teach, and she had her own radio show. So I grew up singing. The, the, the story about me is that I sang before I spoke. Great story. And uh, uh, who knows, you know, who will tell the truth in your family? That you sang God Bless America in your crib and Three Little Fishes. And you couldn't even speak yet. So that I began <laughs> some singing. Uh, so I, uh, I, I grew up wanting to perform. I grew up musical. And I had an older sister, I have an older sister, who also was training to act. And then when I found that out, I thought, well, I guess I can't because she's going to. And I thought it was my idea. And, you know, so I pulled back from that for a long time. Did little theater in Portland, Maine. Did theater wherever there was, in the schools, in the Jewish Community Center, wherever there were shows, I auditioned and performed and was always encouraged to do so. And so when it came time to go to college, then it changed. Now you're going to college, and enough with this. You're not going to be in the theater. Uh, uh, but you can go to college and study theater if you want, but you have to do something more serious. So I thought, all right, I'll study French, and I'll be an interpreter at the United Nations, which is really <laughs> stupid. That's much harder than getting into the theater. <laughs> and uh, since I, sp I chose such an option, uh, theater was uh, the natural road for me. I worked in college all the time in the theater, not on my studies. What college did you go to? William and Mary in Virginia. I found a school that had a wonderful small theater department, a liberal arts uh -huh. college, and the theater burned down the year before I got there. <laughs> so <clears throat> we performed in corners of libraries, uh, rooms that had never been used for theaters before were suddenly uh, formed, you know, out of that n necessity, such invention took place at that at this school. Then, in my sophomore year, um, the the most uh, equipped, uh, what they call the finest non-professional theater in the country, was built with the aid of Rockefeller funds. We had the first Eisenhower lighting board. Nobody knew how to use it. It was a you know a, a preset board, and we were all pressing <laughs> buttons, and lights were going off, and. Oh. oh, yes. <laughs> and we, we had a terrific training in this small college. That's where I got my training, and I was eager to get out and eager to get on with it. So I hurried up and went to summer school and got out in three and a half years. My parents, meanwhile, moved to Boston. I went to live with them and joined the Charles Playhouse, uh, then a, re a regional theater in Boston, a repertory company uh, that had been founded by a great company of actors. Uh, I joined them in their last season. You know, every t I'd get to school, the theater would burn down. I joined the theater, it was their last season. But then we all moved to New York that following year. And so that was the, be in the meantime, I had had that job in summer stock. Went back to school and finished. Came to New York, all of us from Boston, and went right to Bloomingdale's to work. <laughs> I worked in handkerchiefs. Olympia Dukakis worked in, in kitchenware. And Ed Heffernan was working in men's. We, all these actors who had had a tradition in the theater were now selling retail. Are so, you lucky that there wasn't any Bloomingdale's in London or in public? <laughs> yeah. Well, my uh, 
I've always found uh, that uh, the problem with me was being based in music to in the background and the theatre, you always found that you could earn, this is getting into money I suppose, but you could always earn as much in one night doing a concert that you could in three weeks in the theatre. Uh. And when you sort of got married and the kids came along, it was more or less the obvious thing to do. Huh. I, I think that t took away a lot. But uh, talking about your mum was the same. Uh, my mum was uh, from the west of Ireland, and she was involved with amateur dramatics there. And um, the Irish have a way of sort of telling stories and gesticulating and acting out stories. And I always remember her doing this in the middle of the floor. Mm -hmm. And of course, there were 10 of us, 10 children. So she had a captive audience. You know, <laughs> right. And I always remember her singing but always at the sink, uh, <laughs> while she was doing the dishes or getting meals t t together. And uh, my sister is a, an actress, Rebecca, and um, I went to RADA for a couple of months while I was in London. And uh, to be quite honest, I never really had time, because I was always, there was always somebody on the phone saying, I'm not saying it was immensely popular, but there was people saying, you want to do this gig? And they'd say, it's X amount of bread, and I'd say, yeah, and so I never really got a chance to do sort of uh, the things I really wanted to do, and I was a bit afraid of it too, to a certain degree, like uh, fringe theatre and stuff like that. Mm. But I always remember Rebecca saying, well, you didn't have to go to acting school because you had an acting school at home <laughs> uh, with my mom and uh, the stories. And we all, every Christmas, uh, we had the families would get together and everybody had to do their piece. I used to sing. These, I remember my father was very political-minded, and I used to sing this. Uh, well, I used to sing various songs, but at school in the Gaelic language, I used to sing this particular song, which was very political and very, you know, uh, at that time the the feelings of uh, you know the the political scene in Ireland. And they used to take me out of bed and put me up against the wall, and, and I used to sing this song. And they'd be drinking Guinness and smoking cigarettes, listening to me singing. You know, but that was that was the kind of thing that used to happen to me as a child. Uh, and you, you learned, uh, you learned to uh, sort of uh, react to people and you learned to, on the road especially with bands, you learned to communicate with audiences very, very quickly. I mean, people say, when I'm doing things now on stage, I say, well, how do you do this and um, uh, how do you sort of make your sort of contact with audiences? Well, I've had to go from one night in one place to an audience who are absolutely ecstatic to an audience who are like the fridge door opening, you know? <laughs> so you learn how to really manipulate people, not manipulate people, but uh, sort of make contact with people. And that was my sort of background into sort of, uh, sort of legit theatre, as they call it. Mm -hmm. I did small things with uh, sort of televisions. Oh, but basically true, my it? mother, basically yeah. my mother was a great, uh, and she was always very encouraging and uh, very musical and uh, very into theatre, very dramatic. So mm -hmm. that's where I got most of my Mark, stuff from. Go on, I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to ask Lynn Redgrave, mm. since you were talking about the family. Mm. Uh, coming out of the family that, um, that, uh, that you have um, and carving out your own niche um, must have presented problems from time to time. Or well, I, th I think it did in a way, but I... Um, because there was just so many actors, and they were all so damn tall, you know, you couldn't sort of ignore them. But I was determined to, that once I decided I was going to act, that I was going, it was my idea, and I, people would say, of course you're going to be an actor, and I always said, no, no, no. And when I decided I did want to be an actor, I became totally stage struck, and I 
decided to kind of persuade myself it was my idea. I was the first one with this brilliant idea. <laughs> and um, I, I remember auditioning, the first drama school I auditioned for was the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And I had all this wonderful coaching I could have had at home for the pieces. And I didn't want it to be anything to do with them. So I never went to them. I was also terminal, terminally shy. So I didn't know how to um, say to anybody at home, would you hear my speeches or help me, give me a little coaching. So I remember going to this audition at Lambda and an actor friend, I said, have you got any advice? They said, um, well, always take your moment before you, before you do it. You know, just take a moment. Don't do it till you're ready. So I thought, that's good advice. So I went and they said, uh, in your own time. I said, all right. So I turned, I faced the back wall and I didn't know what to do once I was facing the back wall because I didn't have any sort of means. I had no, I didn't know how to prepare for a role. I knew nothing except that they said face the back wall. So when I figured I'd done that long enough, I turned around and did the piece just appallingly, a piece of Julia from Two Gentlemen of Verona, is it? And I did a, a bit of uh, Arnwee's The Lark, which I was totally unsuited. He wrote about this little tiny person. And, um, <laughs> and the, the letter came back saying, uh, at this time, we see no sign of talent. <laughs> so, uh, so I auditioned then for the Central School. And, some, and, the, and then I, I stood and I did the same thing to the back wall. But something must, inspiration must have hit me off the back wall because I turned around and I got in at least, you know. So then I kind of went from there. But for a long time, I'd... Um, I'd mumble, I'd never say my last name, you know, when I was, when I was younger. People say, I'm Lynn. They'd say, who are it? Lynn? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that I wouldn't, because what I hated the most was when I said Lynn, and they'd go, hmm. And when I said Redgrave, they'd go, oh. And I hated that sort of, it was my first lesson in phoniness, you know. You kind of weeded out. My very first job, I was an apprentice for John Dexter at the Royal Court, and the very first day I dropped all the coffee. All of it. I was earning a pound a week, and John Dexter yelled at me. He can be a very tough man, and I th nobody ever screamed at me before, so I laughed. So I worked for John Dexter five times after that. Because I <laughs> showed I had guts, I suppose. But I remember all the people who came for the coffee. They treated me like the apprentice, and one day they heard what my name was, and they treated me differently. And I hated that. So I used to just mum always say, Lim, you know, and, and left it at that. I don't anymore. I got kind of proud of it after a while, you know. And well, you should. It fits, yeah, so you know. <laughs> Everybody's had this kind of thing. Well, I know. I was thing. thinking about answering that. I auditioned for this and I got this. It seems so bad. But I come, also come from a very large family. My older brother is uh, uh, a doctor, which he's still considered the success of the family. Uh, <laughs> I had, um, we had moved around. My father was in the Navy, so I think there's a tendency to try and adapt. And uh, I find that many actors living this chameleon-type life, you can recreate your life. You can say, what didn't I like about myself in Virginia, and how should I change that when we moved to Pennsylvania? Uh, but I was, I was always interested in, in uh, puppets and magic. I loved films. and I eventually saw a, a live theater production. I saw the subject was Rose's with, I believe it's Irene Worth, not Irene Worth, and uh, Jack Albertson and Martin Sheen, and I, it changed my life, quite simply. And you couldn't really tell your family and the people when you took your SATs, you know, when, when you had to check your profession and said other, well, I wasn't about to write in actor because uh, I didn't want to live with that, uh, the kind of uh, razzing that you take from, from, but I knew from that, from that moment that that's what I had to do. And it made more sense to me. Movies seemed to be made somewhere else. I didn't know where, and they were fantasies anyway. Um, theater, I would go around and stand by the stage door, not to ask for autographs, but to see the people I saw in the plays leave. I mean, what, did they wear their costumes to the play? Or 
It was real to me. This was something that could be, if you reached out, you could grab them by the ankles. And uh, so I, I just started doing plays in, in, uh, in school uh, from about the seventh grade, so I guess I was about 12 or 13. And, but see, I had always organized these backyard shows, you know, where you get all the kids from the neighborhood, and I thought they were fantastic. I remember, though, we were using the garage to change, and my father was leaving for work, and he'd seen this enormous two-and-a-half-hour production that's uh, in our backyard, and I just thought it was great. I couldn't understand why people weren't throwing themselves at my feet. And my, my, my father said to my mother, Sue, have you ever considered psychiatry? <laughs> For the, for the boy, because I had just finished doing cartwheels and backflips and imitations of Marlon Brando at six. I mean, it was strange. I know it must have been strange, especially for my family. Uh, but, but I was very serious about it. I used to read theater worlds in, in, the, in, um, in the libraries at school, and, and, and I tried to read everything I could about the theater. And then my father would go on business trips to New York. Uh, I could go along and get single tickets and go, go see shows. And the first year I came was, I think, 66. But uh, then I went, after high school, I went to high school in Yokohama, Japan. And when we were coming back to California, I wanted to come to New York, but there was an audition for a backers audition for a musical, uh, which I did. Am I going on too long? No, no, no. All right. <laughs> a brief biography. Uh, <laughs> But very quickly, I auditioned for a backers audition for this show that I got, and it ran through the end part of August. Now, in those days, if you weren't in school, you'd get drafted. So I went to City College in Los Angeles, which has a very fine theater department, at that time headed by Jerry Blunt. And they had the repertory situation, which I thought was very important. That, in other words, you couldn't get on stage until you'd been there two semesters and taken tech. and. Uh, they make you take everything. I mean, I even had to take wardrobe, and if you were inept at sewing or something, I, I remember my job was sorting sequins, which would <laughs> drive you mad. But you did, you learned. You learned, I was a, I mean, I worked in the electrician's booth, I did all that, and I think that's very important. I also worked at the Renaissance Fair in a company of players that did maybe six or seven shows a day. So you had small walk-on parts and you had bigger roles. And you also were uh, learning in, improvisationally to work in the crowds and, and, and stay in character and so forth. So uh, two and a half years of, of drama school and uh, I started doing television and so forth. But when I th think back on the answer while well, I auditioned for Amadeus and I got the Elephant Man, that wasn't day one. That was yeah. <laughs> eight, nine years down the line. Mm, right. <laughs> oh, no. Rosanna, I think, would be very interesting. Oh, well, I trained at NYU School for the Arts, and like you, I had a, a very similar experience. I was always interested in puppets. I always had a marionette, a hand puppet. I was always doing shows. My brother and cousin have this, these stories about me tying them up in rope down in the cellar and making them do things. And, uh, all my life, and I was, when I was young, I could do... Um, uh, impersonations. I used to, I could sing like Johnny Ray. That was my big thing. And, uh, you know, the clouds, a song. And uh, they used to make me do that. And I learned, like you did, very, very early uh, to present myself before people. And, um, and you know, I started out at, at a small college in West Virginia where I realized after a few years for my own uh, mental health, I better get out of there because that was not the place for me. And I transferred to NYU School for the Arts, which was at that time a brand new school. 
And I must say that as a black woman in the theater, a young black woman, I consider myself extremely blessed to have been exposed to some of the masters that I have been, that I was exposed to in my training at NYU, people like Lloyd Richards and Peter Cass and Olympia Dukakis and uh, Nora Dunphy in speech. I mean, these are the kind of teachers that were all under one roof mm -hmm. in the early 60s when I went to NYU. And I consider that uh, combination of good training and the God-given talent that I have uh, to have produced the artist that I am today. Um, and as I said, uh, there was a sort of natural progression from NYU into uh, somewhat of an alternative theater, as it was called in those days. Uh, but I found uh, quickly that uh, I, w I was a very large actress, and I, I wanted to say more. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another up into the public theater story. I guess. How did you feel about Death of the King's Horseman? How did, how did you feel about working in that, which is a play that you were <laughs> Yes, that to date has been the most difficult acting assignment mm -hmm. I've ever had. I must say that uh, I did learn something from it, and I'm glad that I did. Uh, I. I elected not to read the reviews because um, I had an experience in Chicago not long ago when I just knew that my reviews were outstanding and a half hour before I went on I read one and it blew my mind and upset me so I decided that was not the thing to do. We're too vulnerable when we're playing these roles. And um, I also appreciate people who come out to the theater in spite of reviews and use their own minds. I, I had the great pleasure of playing opposite Earl Hyman, mm -hmm. who last night won the St. Olev Award from Norway. They gave it to him up at the Promenade Theatre, the Source Foundation. Yeah. And, uh, and I consider that a great, great honor. So you're always learning something, and it, and it does pay to go into these productions with an open mind. Uh, there are some directors that you strike instant rapport with, and there are others that you... You, you have to dig for it, and um, yes. you know, Our and if you don't know how, shame <laughs> on you. That brings us, how do you feel about directors? <coughs> well, oh, well, let's, let's talk about directors. All right, what should, what, what should we talk about? All right. How much do they give you? Well, this I like it if brief. they don't give up too much. I think that the, the sort of director without naming names, the director I like the least is the director who feels he wants to be responsible personally for every moment that mm. my character does on the stage. I don't think that, mm -hmm. I think that actually is very inhibiting and it doesn't make the best work. And I like very much directors who uh, create an atmosphere where you feel very free to be to be hopeless, to be foolish, to be as wonderful as you hope you could be, to be, to try anything and never feel that you're being cautioned. I loathe it when somebody says, oh, don't do that, that won't work. I hate that more than anything. There's an amazing amount of people who do do that. Uh, try and shortchange the, because they think they can save you wasting time, but they don't know that maybe down that little, what appears to them, cul-de-sac, maybe some wonderful little pot of gold, and if there isn't, maybe you'll find another one somewhere else. 
and it's, uh, it, it's hard. I, that for the first job that I mentioned, Tony Richardson's wonderful because he used to say, oh, darling, just come on and do something absolutely marvelous center stage. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of fun. We were all terrible in it, but it was very encouraging, you know. <laughs> yes. I had, uh, I've always believed that the, the essence of genius is simplicity. Mm. And I've found with, uh, I have to mention Trevor Nunn in this because I don't know whether There's anybody no hears. no way of avoiding this. <laughs> right, yeah. It's just... For me and John Kerr, they just seemed to, they co-directed the, the miserables, as we call it. <laughs> and uh, it just has this facility to bring the best out in people with the least amount of interference, as yeah. you said, Lynn. And he just let you do your thing, but he would, in a great way, be able to mold what you were doing into what he wanted. But he would never get in your way. And he would just encourage people. And I've, he never once lost the temper or lost his cool and he was dealing with a lot of different people I mean especially in this where he was dealing with young children and I remember seeing him in the Barbican one time and the pressure of this show and etc etc was really heavy and he was at the same time I believe uh, doing auditions for Nicholas Nickleby for the second time into America and he was really under an awful lot of pressure and I remember seeing him sitting down and talking with the young Cosette which is the young little girl in the show about eight or nine years of age and talking to her for about 20 minutes and there were people on the phone and talk, trying to get him away and just sitting there talking. He was just an I just found him an amazing, amazing man. He had this facility to push huge productions into shape with the least amount of jumping around the place and, mm. and using, you know, these jawbreakers, these guys. I've always found that people who use big, long words and big, long jaw, they don't know what they're talking about, basically. <laughs> it's the people who use simplistic terms and who talk, and they're the people who know where it's at. And I just can't say enough about Trevor Nunn. I just think he's a marvelous man and an amazing Did guy. Do you have to know his language in order to follow him? Not really, no. He would always adapt himself. I mean, he talks simple to me because I'm a simple guy. No, he was just... He was just a great guy, and everybody had the same experience with him, and he was able to get the whole thing together and get the ensemble together and get everybody working as a unit and get the best results. And he has this oh, innocence or something. I don't know what it is. He has this conception of theatre, which is outside. I know he's a great businessman. I know he's made a lot of money, and there, there was a lot of scam in the paper about how much money he's made outside in commercial theatre out of the RSC, but I, he is the best and you, if you want the best, you pay for the best. That's what I say. But he always had, he has this approach, and you sometimes think that he's actually joking with you when he talks to you. He talks so innocently and like a child about what you, he wants you to do. And he's for real. I mean, it's for real. And when you see that he is for real, then you really, it really gives you that enthusiasm that you need to do what you have to do. And he's just a marvelous guy. Linda, you've worked with a wonderful comedy director. You want to talk about Jean? Jean Sachs, mm -hmm. yes, I do. Uh, the work that we did in the uh, exploration of this play uh, was astonishing to me. Uh, Jean uh, is so comfortable with himself, and he's an actor first, so he understands the process, he understands how to articulate, and most of all, what you're talking about, Lynn, he does, and what we all want is for someone to trust us, to listen, and to watch us, and not to jump in and um, 
become an obstacle to our impulses, which is a most killing thing, you know. An actor uh, begins an impulse, begins a thought process, and someone comes in, it's like being interrupted in mid-sentence all the time. It gives you, you know, uh, capillaries go off and things <laughs> gives you a sort of a stroke. You stop being able to function. You can't you can't continue that through line, and all of us know how to do that. We all know how to be interrupted and how to survive the strokes. <laughs> but so, so that when somebody is there who takes pleasure in and understands the process and encourages it, um, and that's what Gene is like, his comedy and his feel for comedy comes from where I think the, the real source for comedy is pain yeah. and anger, and he understands that. So you, you never have to explain yourself to him. The astonishing thing about Gene Sachs is that he knows when you are struggling, he knows when you are off, and he never gets angry at you. It's never personal. He doesn't take it personally. You haven't let him down. He can see where the trouble is, and you thought you were the only one who knew. <laughs> and he says, I see, what about, and gives you some options, and you feel bailed out, you feel someone has thrown you that lifesaver, and that you're not alone. And so he knows when to come in and when to help you. And it's, it's never for the self-aggrandizement. It's always for the development of the work, and to work on a new play with a living playwright, which is rare for us. Um, in sitcom, in television, which I've been doing in the last nine years, of course you're working with living writers, and uh, they change often. Uh, in over nine years, you work with many different people. But to work with Neil Simon, who's such a craftsperson, so skilled, so highly skilled that he can sit and listen to his play and watch you and never, ever blame you when it doesn't work, to the point where you have to say, wait, wait, let me try it again, because he's rewriting it. He says, no, no, it doesn't work, and I can fix it. And you say, well, wait, I just, I just try. No, no, he knows already. And, uh, and he, but he never says, she can't do this. He always takes the credit, the blame. And so the collaboration is thrilling. Wonderful. Yeah. They work wonderfully together, and always it was about exploring this play. There seems to be one common thread which is quite fascinating in everything you've said, which is the fact that, without saying it directly, directors that treat actors as intelligent people are obviously uh, at the core of all this. George, what about you and this well, question? The way I like to act when they let me is with as much simplicity as possible. Um, it's a story that we're telling. We're up on the stage. We know the story. They don't. And a director like George Abbott um, really insists on clarity, and it's the, it's the best way to work, I find. Uh, it's it, assuming the thing is written, that the thing comes out of the oven in some sort of viable shape, you, you do it and throw least number of obstacles in the way of the audience. I mean, it has to get to them immediately. Mm. I, you, you know right away when a scene isn't working. 
it's oh, it, you can almost see the word tilt go on over the stage like a <laughs> pinball machine, and you feel it, and uh, and it's hard to get them back, and you try and find that in rehearsal. You try and find where it's going to say tilt, um, and and uh, Mike Ockrent is a wonderful director. He did uh, Me and My Girl. We uh, the walls were covered with with uh, pictures from the public library and articles out of magazines about England in the, the 1930s. We were inundated with the stuff. Everybody bought in, uh, brought in uh, books of the period. Um, uh, a wonderful director named Tom Moore did uh, Once in a Lifetime at Circle in the Square. And he did the same thing. He was a young guy, uh, he was in the early 30s, but he really knew 1930 in Hollywood. And uh, again, the, the walls were covered with stuff. And uh, I remember Tom Moore saying to us at one point in rehearsals, he said, uh, he said, this won't do. You're not bringing me anything new. And that, that, was, that was kind of inspiring. It always seemed to me uh, as though Great acting is almost transfer of thought. If the actor knows exactly what he's thinking and talking about, the audience knows. And if he's a little bit befuddled about what he's Absolutely. talking about, the audience is worse. He never gets the idea. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as though you must transfer your mind out to the audience. Which I is what, that. what you said. It's trivial kind of comedy when you're playing. Yeah, well, particularly. For some reason or other, your mind goes to a shopping list or something. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you, you get it right back from sure. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, what about you and, and this question? The, uh, I've been very fortunate to work with some excellent directors, and uh, you know I've agreed with nearly everything I've heard here today. The, the directors who have a clear idea of what they need from the performers have cast so perfectly that you are so close to what he wants anyway that I felt and found that some of the best directors uh, you know you'd be three weeks in rehearsals and say gee you know he doesn't he doesn't say or do anything does he? <laughs> well he's already done his job because That's he's right. found the right. exact people mm -hmm. um, Alan Arkin I thought on room service um, I imagined him he's always been an idol of mine getting up and, and, and doing things and showing us things he pretty much cast it and let people step, step back. Tim Jerome, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you're working with now, George, and uh, all these wonderful Second City people that uh, uh, really knew their craft. And, 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 and another thing, working with, uh, I was so thrilled to be working with Sir Peter Hall. <laughs> and that's another thing, I was worried that he wasn't saying anything. So they said, no, no, when he's quiet, he's happy, you see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, uh, but it is a great thrill to work with uh, uh, so many different types of directors. Joe Layton is so much from the musical theater and, and out of, I guess, Las Vegas, too. He stages a lot of one-people entertainments and so forth, and they couldn't be more di uh, unalike. But, I, you know, the, the director becomes a father figure, a confessor. Uh, you know, it's almost a psychiatrist, and, and, and he's the captain of the ship and, and, and probably the most crucial person uh, there. Charles Nelson Riley, I think, is unfairly categorized. I mean, don't let the game shows fool you. This man knows so much about theater. 
there was an actress who had to hang up her coat, and she said, is it going to be a hook or a hanger? And he later said to me, her life is a hook or a hanger. <laughs> Julie Harris would have taken the coat hanger out, arrested, and won another Tony, all right? <laughs> She, she wouldn't have needed to ask if it's a hook or a hanger. Now, in this person's mind, it was showing that I am a professional, you know, person, and I'm getting this out of the way. I don't know whether I'm going to hang it up like this or have to take it out and do do this. But this, you know, he's he's directed operas, and I have great respect for him. And I really um, responded to the person who said that. He has a way of freeing you to go down those cul-de-sacs. Mm -hmm. I knew certain things were wrong or they didn't feel right, but like you say, you might plumb something from that, that little journey down the corridor that you know is going to be a dead end. And he, I, I mean, he's so positive and brings such joy to the theater, you can't wait to get to rehearsals. Mm -hmm. I've worked on the other, the other end of the scale is the directors that yell and use fear and intimidation, give you notes between acts. Mm. It can be it can be the agony, it can be the ecstasy, but I've been very fortunate indeed. I think what you're all saying, you know, is because you're all professionals and you're all able to listen to a director and know what he wants from you and bring that forth. You're not you don't have to be given all the notes. You don't have to be given the whole all the steps <clears throat> on the journey. What happens when you first start? what happens when you're not ready and you're not sure of, of what he knows and the director isn't sure that you know what he knows. Well, it's, I think it's hard when, when you start. I always felt that one, when I was beginning that whatever the director said, it was one's job to, my God, I must do that until, because I didn't realize there were such things as bad directors or inept directors or directors who didn't read the play and simple <laughs> things like that. And I work with some of those too. I work with one on a, on a production of Antony and Cleopatra he didn't read it, he doubled up a couple of the parts. He had one of Cleopatra's soldiers come in and just put on another hat and not even a moustache and turn up as one of the other camp, you know? I mean, it was bizarre beyond belief and he just never read the play. And I didn't know there were such people until I'd got down a bit and worked with a few and realized that you, it's a hard thing. Sometimes you have to be so, you have to be open because even the person who maybe is turning you off and may one day give you, give you a bit of gold so you don't want to be so closed off that that, that person who you think maybe isn't too good is, is maybe going to just say something that could be fabulous and so you don't want to always be defensive. On the other hand, you also have to be a little self-protective and say it's my job to present the character as I see it and then uh, have all the input and the output to make that all part of what the playwright and the director want from it. It's something that a tough. director can do for you is to, if they watch and listen, as you go down those cul-de-sacs, as you journey through your impulses and your intelligence, because we're not only talking about um, instinct, mm. is that the director can glean from that and direct you, help you to expand on something that you may not be able to see but can or, but, but have some instinct about or some direction toward. Director can take, I'm taking from something that you're saying now, mm. can, can help you to clarify what you may not even be aware of. An artist has a clean uh, canvas and begins the strokes and somebody looking and listening can help you with that. Um, that's, to me, a very strong uh, trait in a great director. 
to encourage, to watch, to support, and to help you expand on something that you may not be daring enough to do, to encourage that growth and, and only brings more growth. That's the process of work. That, to go in with pre, you know, predisposed or proscribed ideas on how things should be is antithetical to uh, the creative process. The process is, should be a surprise to everyone. Mm. That, uh, at some point in, in our seminars, we, I keep going back to a young actor who came out of Yale who said that he auditioned directors. He was a star and he could afford to do that. And uh -huh. he said it was important to know how a director was going to work with you, not necessarily how you were going to work with the director. And that keeps, because the director that you feel that is right for you can bring out the best in you. And at this point, we have to stop and take a very, very short break. We can stretch and stand up, but please don't go far away because we're coming back again and there'll be more on this as well as questions from the audience. And I see everybody writing, so I know they have a lot of things that they want to ask you. But Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're right in the middle of our performance panel. And this is a wonderful, wonderful array of talent. And they will continue now with Jean Dalrymple, a co-moderator, and Skylar Chapin, talking about what it is to work in the theatre. And will you please pick up from where we left off, we were talking about the performance, the director, and I'm going to begin asking questions about the audition at some point. But Skylar and Jean, perhaps you'll pick up. All right, I'd like to ask a question which um, uh, is very much part of the whole subject of performance. Everybody sitting on this stage has a distinguished career, but eventually the show they're in will close. The next question is the job in the future. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to hear this panel speak about their own feelings of the insecurity of the profession which, to which they add such distinction. And I'll start with Lynn. Well, the, first of all, I don't, when Sweet Sue closes or, or when I leave Sweet Sue, which, whichever one it is, uh, I don't have a job to go to. I will go home to California to my husband and my children, all of whom have been juggling my life and their lives while I do this. Uh, I, I do find the insecurity hard. My, the most favorite position I like to be in is having, knowing I've got a job in two months' time. That's like this, the great, isn't it? Then you can go on a holiday, you can enjoy yourself. I never take a vacation because I always think the minute I'm on that plane, it once, it, it's happened before, I've been on a plane. I once got to Paris and I had to come right back. I, I never went again, that was 10 years ago. I, I, I can't go anywhere unless it's for a job and so, but I do also, I guess we something perverse and weird that we like the insecurity. I do like the fact that even on a day when everything seems grim and, and I'll never work again, that the phone might go and I might meet wonderful people. I might get to work with one of these wonderful people who are up here or with our distinguished guests in the audience. And uh, a bunch of strangers or friends might get together and we'd open up a new script and we'll start all over again. And you never know when it's going to happen and I remain mostly uh, sort of perversely optimistic about the whole thing. I don't know why, I just, I just do. And I, I almost never, I don't think there's ever been one time in my life where I had a job to go to at the end of any single job. And I I've been an actress for 25 years now. I know why. You're stage struck. 
Yes, I am still. <laughs> it's true. Wow. It's true. Yeah. What about you, Linda? I, I, I agree with Lynn. It's, I keep saying, I've got to get a job, and I'm in this play, and I keep thinking uh, uh, that the anxiety always underlying for the actor, what's next? Uh, we come from, even though some of our beginnings were easy, as was, was mine, almost charmed, the, uh, the, then the, the daily hacking it out to to find some security. I loved be having a television series. I loved having a job to go to every day, right? Mm -hmm. There was <clears throat> the comfort, the, the familiar, the, uh, the structure of life that, that is very rare in the life of an actor to know where you're going to go, where you're going to be five days in a row, you know? And, uh, and that was nine years, so that's the longest job I could ever imagine having. And I'd do it again, because I loved that structure. But I don't know what's next. <clears throat> I am in a position now, because of the series, that I develop uh, and produce movies, and uh, movies for television mostly, for myself and for other actors. So my hope is that when I leave the show, or when it closes, um, the film that I'm developing now will be shot uh, in next year sometime. But that's also iffy and vague. Who, do, who knows? The screenplay may not work out. But uh, there's also the factor for women, and that is that there are in films about five women doing all the roles, and so um, the same five people working over and over again. And, uh, as there are fewer films, there are less and less opportunities for women. And women in their 40s, uh, there are less and less opportunities for. We're told that if we can just hold on till we're 70, we'll start up again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that the statistics at Screen Actors Guild are that you know there's a lot more work in your 70s than in your 40s when you when you seem to become. Uh, unattractive and sexless. So, uh, <laughs> trying to kick through those years and uh, find some work. There's less work in the theater, we all know that. And that's why television has been such a blessing for me, is that it's offered mm -hmm. me an arena I never even thought would be possible to me. I came to New York and sang and danced my way from one chorus job to another, from one review to another, wanting to be a serious actor. and. It, took a long time for me, 10 years, to get a straight speaking part that didn't have music in it. Ah, she sings, she can't act. So there's that dilemma, too. And now I'm in a very lovely position, but I don't know what my next job is. Calm. What about this for you? Well, I remember a great story. In, in one of the musicals I was in in Dublin, it was closing, and um, the tannoy was open, you know, tannoy that comes into the different rooms. And the two, the stage manager was talking to one of the assistant stage managers, and he was saying, oh, I'll do the Dublin act. He said, well, what are you going to do, John, now that uh, the musical is closing? He says, I don't really know. He said, I suppose it's back to the Valium sandwiches. <laughs> uh, my father used to keep on saying, well, when are you going to get yourself a real job? You get all that kind of stuff. But I, fortunately enough, without... <laughs> You know that? You yes. get that one, you know? <laughs> or what do you do in your spare time? Mm -hmm. But uh, I have, of course, the musical background, and I have a lot of things that I can do. The Abbey, uh, I don't want to go on about what they've offered me to do, but they've sort of said the Abbey, which is the ensemble in Ireland, equivalent to the URC, have said that I can come back and do anything I want to there, which I would love to do. Um, I thought also I would use this program to say, 
I'm free in October. Is <laughs> anybody out there? <laughs> <laughs> the but uh, uh, but I, I have the music thing. I've been asked to write music for a series in Australia. Uh, and, if you uh, had your druthers, which of these would you choose? The Abbey Theatre, the right music? Which you see, it's again the thing of uh, feeling secure. Linda mentioned something about being a singer and an actor and this type of division between he's a good singer, but can he act? But funny enough, the audition I did for Les Miserables was for acting, not for singing. They knew I could sing the role, but they, Trevor Nunn wanted to see how I acted it. And I was very uh, fortunate. Would you continue about the audition? Uh, I haven't done a lot of auditions, funny enough, in my time. I just people, I'm lucky enough to, to have been asked for things come, people come along and say, we want you to do that, and I don't, uh, I'm not, I've been big-headed about that, but people have asked me to do things, and I don't really have to go on audition. But uh, the audition for me is probably, uh, I remember doing one in London, and it was quite funny, but it must be very soul-destroying. But I think the one thing that you must remember in auditioning and, uh, is that directors are looking, like somebody just said, they're looking for a certain thing and for a certain person. And because you don't happen to be that person, you must not take that personally. People sort of take, take that kind of thing. You see people coming out absolutely devastated because they didn't get the part or they thought they were going to get a part and they're absolutely devastated because they didn't. But I must say that, that the one thing that sort of kept me going as regards to things like that, you must not take that. If a director is looking for a certain thing, and thank God Trevor Nunn was looking for that kind of guy, I am in this part. They go for that, and they don't. It's not personal. It's not down to your talent or your, etc. If people could remember that going to auditions, that mm -hmm. it's they're looking for a certain thing, and if you don't have that certain thing, then they move on to another person. I think that Trezana ought to tell us something about what you think about your next job. Well, after uh, Horseman closed, people people were asking me about that, and. Um, I, I just really had a peace about it. I had I had a faith about it that it wouldn't be too long before I would be working again. And I was just sitting here thinking that actors, if they have survived in the theater, all of us, whether we realize it or not, are drawing off of a strength and a power that is beyond ours. We are functioning off of faith, a faith from within. We believe in our gifts, we believe in our talents, and we believe that some power is going to sustain us. And I, I know that actors who have survived the profession uh, are very, very strong people, whether they care to admit it or not. And I also uh, believe that, like Lynn, that you, you must remain creative. You know, you have to remain creative. You have to look for other things to do. I write, I direct, I sing, and I do it all. And it helps me to survive. If I can't do it in New York, I will do it someplace else. Uh, and you know, it's not always about making a whole lot of money. You, you can't even rely on that. It is about using the gifts that you have, and it's amazing the people that you come in contact with and the young people that you're able to inspire and influence. And to me, that's the bottom line. You know, we, we're blessed to have these wonderful careers and be out in front of people, but to be able to inspire young people and to keep that creative process going, to me, is very, very important. 
Very good. We're about to go to questions now, and I think that you have not been spared. These questions will come to you, too. So be prepared for some answers on both how you'll survive insecurity in the theater and how you'll survive auditions in the theater. Our first question, please. Uh, my name is Mel Silverman. I'm new to the business, and my question is to Lynn Redgrave, and it's a two-part question at the beginning and now. Uh, how do you, uh, what influences your decision about accepting a part? Do you read, do you read the play? Do you uh, look to see who the co-stars, the directors are? And to what extent does the agent influence your decision? Well, um, to try and encapsulate all those, I'll, I'll take now. Right now, and for much of my career, I have not had an agent. I, found I, I find I work less when I have an agent than when I don't. <laughs> I work all the time without an agent. And I work much, much less with one. And I don't know whether I'm peculiar or paranoid or strange, or there's a little clone that some agency has in a closet looks like me. But when I'm with an agency, I don't work nearly as much. And, 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 and jobs disappear. And I don't like that lack of control. So um, to take the most recent thing, when I was asked to do Sweet Sue by A.R. Gurney, I had the advantage of knowing three things or four things right off. A, that it was definitely going to be done. That was a help. <laughs> um, that Mary Tyler Moore was definitely going to be in it. That it was definitely going to be directed by John Tillinger, whose work I already knew. And that it was by a wonderful American playwright, A.R. Gurney Jr., whose work I also knew. So I read that script with all this foreknowledge, and that helped me a lot. And in fact, it was one of the fastest decisions I ever made. Now, long, long ago, you asked me about beginning. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I do a job because I want to work with somebody, and I say, I'll swing from a chandelier for that person. Sometimes I've had to take the job for the rent. Sometimes I've had to do it where I think the piece is terrible, but the part is good, and why not try that role? There's never one thing, but when I started out, I didn't have any choice. And I often wonder, when I was sent the script of Georgie Girl, I'd in fact auditioned for a very small part in it, and when I was offered it, um, I often wonder, this was a film that nobody wanted to make and nobody wanted to release once it was made and everybody wanted to ban. And I wonder if I'd have had the smartness to know that that could turn into what it did for me and for everybody concerned with it. And it was so much easier when you didn't have choice, you know. It was, um, it's nice to have choice. I like it, but I'm not so sure how wise I am about it always. Thank you, Lynn. Thank my name is Joanna Lang, and I'd like to direct this question to Trezana Beverly. Um, how do you prepare for a role encompassing the character, its being, its essence, and lifestyle when you haven't had any of these experiences in life? Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> then you have to be a good fisherman, and you go out with your rod and your reel, and you have to ask a lot of questions. Um, you. Uh, find a track to get on and then you pursue it. Uh, you know, go to the library. Library has been one of my good friends. Um, sometimes you're in a position where you can actually visit the culture which you are attempting to develop, you know, live out of through the character. Uh, you may know people who are associated with those kinds of people. Uh, you. And then when you have exhausted that, and of course you work with your director as much as you can, uh, you pump him for information, the information that you need. Uh, and when, you know, and when, when, that's, uh, when that's over with, 
then you rely on your imagination. You, you take sometimes you take the little that you have, and uh, then you use your imagination to expand it. Thank you. Very good. This question's for Mark Hamill. Mark, before I go on, I just, uh, just want to say I hold the world's record for uh, the amount of times I've seen Star Wars. I just had to get that one out. <laughs> You're the one. Um, this question is, before scripts start flopping across your desk, um, when you're a beginning actor, uh, you've got to do something called find an agent. There are several, there are tens of thousands of actors in this city, and there are several hundred agents that are good. Um, how do you go about finding an agent that's going to recognize your unbelievable potential and that's going to push you into every casting agent's office in New York? I mean, yeah. as Lynn said, I'm sure once you become established or, or once you get a niche, you know exactly what you're doing, but well, do everyone talks about the catch-22 that you can't get a job if, if you don't have an agent, an agent doesn't want to take you unless they have some work they, they can see. So it's very frustrating. And like everyone else, Starting out, I was a waiter, I was a janitor, I worked in an ice cream store, I was a copy boy at Associated Press to pay the rent <laughs> and still stay in school. But uh, there's no set way. I think that if you're determined enough, uh, you, you will create your own circumstance. I, I got into a, a small play, well, it was a, in a 99-seat house, and uh, none of us were being p paid. And uh, it, it turned out that there were people coming to see it to see whether or not they would want to invest in it and send it to New York. It never happened that way, but the, there were professionals in the audience enough to, to the point where someone came backstage and said, are you interested in pursuing this as a profession? And I said, yes. And that person arranged for me to go around. I went to agents' offices with two scenes ready. Um, subject was roses. And um, for something lighter, I did Snoopy from Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, a monologue. I didn't sing or anything. Mm -hmm. but to show, um, you know, that I could do comic and dramatic. And uh, I got an agent. But I don't think there's any set pattern. I think, you, I think determination is the most important thing. If people can't discourage you, you know, into becoming a teacher or something or going into the construction business, <laughs> if you're crazy enough to know that there's no other way for you than the theater, then it will happen for you even though there's no set formula. So keep working and it will happen for you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is Debbie McIntyre. My question is to Colm Wilkinson. Do sets, props, and costumes have much effect on your performance? Well, today, I suppose, in the theater today, sometimes there was a, a saying I saw here, a piece in the paper where it said he went home humming the set. Just <laughs> <laughs> And there's a lot of that, but uh, I must say, as regards to Les Miserables and the set, the John Napier set, um, if I can answer the question this way, it, set, it sets, uh, I'm not trying to be punny, but it sets up the atmosphere for the, the play. And I, I look upon Les Miserables as a play with music rather than a musical. So uh, the sets can, and if you, if, 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 uh, I like to, uh, but, oh, it's a, it's a difficult, when you, when you walk on, out on the stage, I find that no matter what set is there, you always have the third eye and you're always aware that there's an audience out there, or whichever side you're coming on, depending on, but <laughs> there's always an audience there. So I believe in actually getting yourself totally into the character and becoming that person, and the set takes on realism and becomes real and credible then. But you also must be aware of the audience as well in that, in that context. 
But the set, I think, does have an effect. The lighting also. I mean, the lighting, it creates a mood and an atmosphere which you feed off. And um, I love that, and I love that too. When the set is right, like working with a guy like John Napier, who for me is absolutely incredible, um, it does help, absolutely. And, and uh, I don't see a lot of the effects of these barricades and things coming in, which is a spectacle. But um, that is very entertaining. But it's a pity um, you can't yeah. see it, because it's very dramatic if you're sitting it in is, the audience. It is, yeah. Our next question. Uh, hi, I'm Lillian Yermak, and this uh, question is directed to Mr. Irving. How do you deal with opening night? You know, jitters. Uh, what is your reaction when you have an opening? <coughs> opening night is not the jittery thing that it used to be. Um, the, the critics come on a, on a series of nights, so you don't have that that terrifying impact anymore. That's as, that's as regards critics. Of course, there's the official opening night when all your peers and your friends and relatives are sitting there. And uh, I always feel that by that time, uh, I, I pretty well know what I'm doing. Uh, there are nerves of a sort, but not like... Uh, well, the first time out of town is, is the nervous time for me. Uh, you know, first time ever in front of a big audience. But opening night, I'm kind of used to it, thank God. Let me ask one quick question. How do you feel about critics coming in before opening night? For the, as they're now doing, they come in two or three performances before the opening night. They're asking to come in on a matinee. How do you feel I, about I, a critic was, on opening night? Can we I, do I it quickly? It was, a good, a it was a good idea in general that a, that a critic should sit in a paying audience of people who chose to see that play. I think the only thing I don't like about New York is that the Times, who we know are so enormously influential, come on a Wednesday matinee. And not, I love Wednesday matinees, but Wednesday matinees on the whole are not representative of the whole audience right. and I think yes. it's a shame I think yeah, uh, that's I not agree. to say the Wednesday matinee isn't a lovely Absolutely. audience I love Wednesday matinees but it is not representative of a true regular audience of every night and also they never print that the fact they say their opinion as it is fact and never mention the fact uh, that maybe the audience felt completely different than they did and I'll give you an example with the play I'm doing now that the three daily papers came on a, on a night when it was not a papered house, it was paying people, and they roared with laughter. Now, only Clive Barnes mentioned that, uh, he said, I, I think it's a terrible play, I wanted to walk out, but the audience was screaming with laughter. Now, that to me is fair. <laughs> I saw Police Academy and was appalled. I thought it was terrible, but it was making the audience fall out of their chairs, and I would have duly reported that. The other thing <laughs> is that uh, there is no other forum, or there's no other... Uh, you know, in television, in feature films, feature films can uh, uh, find their audience. You know, they nowhere in the world are the critics as important as they are in this city. In in London, there are many influential critics. Uh, you know, uh, I I just find it extraordinary that you know that the Times, and I'm not saying Frank Rich because I think it's whoever is at the night at the New York Times has such a power that. The day after he raved about room service, there were scalpers on the sidewalk. And the day after he panned the nerd, we had 45% drop-off in future sales, theater parties, and so forth. So we're slowly building because it is a word-of-mouth play, but uh, it's just some, that's just one of the uh, realities of modern theater, and I, I, it's, it's amazing to me. Do you feel that there's any solution? Uh, somebody wants to speak quickly. Yeah, I just had a quick question. Linda was the only one that did get a question, and I had a curiosity. Um, the Outsiders think that it's all very glamorous and, and, and all the nonsense uh, that uh, the real people working know uh, 
it's not like that at all. As far as when you were working with nine years on, on Alice, now you're in a little bit of a different uh, situation there. How does the, the performer who's used to better visibility or, or more recognition, how does the performer justify the decision to- That's not a question, that's a statement. Quick. The selection of, of going into a, a Broadway show where you don't really have a, um, a great deal of... I think what he's saying is how do you feel between television and uh, the security of television and, and the insecurity of the Well, there's show. no security in television either. If your ratings aren't good, you're off the air. So <laughs> I come from the theater, and I always want to work in the theater. And I read this part, and it was a part I wanted to do. So it was clear to me that, I, that this was a move that I needed to make. I think that uh, one of the things that's, that's so important, and we keep hearing about it each time on this seminar, is the power of the critics, the power of the critics. And when they say that, it's really the power of the New York Times. It's, and it's, it is anybody that is the one critic on the New York Times. Well, I don't understand it because somebody put it down to economics because musicals like the one I'm in cost $4 million to mount. So people have to be told that it's good because the tickets are so high to buy here that you need somebody to say because you're not going to go if somebody has already said, well, it's not so good. Because to come into the theater, to park your car, to get into to New York City, to have a meal afterwards, what does it cost you? About $150 or something like that if you're going two people. That's ridiculously expensive. But it's that, I think, it's the economics of the situation where people, why do people listen to people like Mr. Frank Rich? Why do they, why do they go on what he says? I mean, is it because he's an expert on what people should go to see? Or is, do they actually want to believe what he is saying? I'm asking you people now about this, because well, I don't really understand. London Les Miserables got mixed reviews. The people stood up every single night in the Barbican. They, it came to the palace, they stood up. The people made the show, but the critics there didn't have that power. Here, I think it's because it costs so much to keep a play on or a musical I on. I think that's a very important part of it. And, and I think the, one of the things that, um, unfortunately, I have to bring this to an end, and then again and again and again, there's never enough time to fully explore what it is to work in the theater. Could you do a sequel? And what we're trying to do is to... We could run a television series on this. <laughs> no, what we want to do is make going to the theater a habit, and it's twofold. It should be a habit of going to the theater, and we should bring down the cost of the ticket. Yes. Have both of those things, and it should not be, is it worth it? The wing seminars and everything that the wing does is towards that. We want to be able to say theater in every way that we can. We want to bring theater to the people. We want people to come to the theater. And so I have to say thank you very, very much for all of you being here tonight.
You should do this in three weeks later. You should do this. I was no months later. It's not a long time. I mean, but it was good in a long time. 21 days. It was good in a long time. 21 days.